John Eric Hexum. A few of you got chills just by saying his name, but um, probably very few of you. It's actually a chance none of you. Who was he? Well, prepare to feel lucky. A long time ago, uh, by long time I mean 1960s, 1970s, we didn't really have muscly action hero people, right? In movies, I mean, think about it. You get someone with a lot of muscles, they're playing Hercules, or they're playing a wrestler, or maybe they're playing a bad gangster who can, you know, bend pipes over his head, that sort of thing. But most of the action heroes, Steve McQueen, uh, Clint Eastwood is Dirty Harry, we don't know what their muscles look like. We have no idea. That started to change in the 1980s. I think with uh, Schwarzenegger doing Conan. It, it, what happened was we got suddenly in the in the 80s, a lot of people coming into Hollywood or who were already in Hollywood, young actors who were suddenly hitting the gym and getting very, very muscly. And they're all over the place. And it's very difficult for any of them you know, it's what are the odds when there's a whole bunch of you and there's only, you know, so many places for a muscly guy to be in movies and TV. That Schwarzenegger or um, who's the other guy? The Beastmaster guy. What he did. So, one of these people who got initially lucky was John Eric Hexum. He got a TV primetime on one of the major networks. It was a show called Voyagers, or Voyagers. I think Voyagers. See, when you're going on a walk with Albert, you and I, we don't have our internet with us. So we just have to try to remember these things. If I brought, if I had my other hand, one of them Google Boy phones, I'd, you know, this would be cheating. So that's why this is a real walk with Albert. It's whatever's in my head when we're walking. It was a TV show called Voyages or Voyagers. Now, the reason I remember this is because the kid who was in it, he teams up with a kid and they go time traveling, right? And the, the, the show itself is nothing spectacular. The kid he goes time traveling with is from the Bad News Bears, the movie or the TV series, one of those. He was like a famous kid actor who was always, he was always being the like brat like the juvenile delinquent brat kind of black curly hair. I don't remember his name. Um, so, but it was a, a primetime TV show, Voyages. The two of them going through time. And John Eric Hexham, he looked like, sort of, you know, not, not as muscly as Schwarzenegger, but he did have those classic chiseled looks and by classic I also mean ubiquitous you know so many actor wannabes they would have this face where you could swap them all out for each other like whoever was Beastmaster right I couldn't come up with his name but whoever was Beastmaster uh, the John Eric Hexams out there in the casting pool you swap them out put in, in them and now they're Beastmaster or you just you know you do a Beastmaster ripoff call it Animal Master um, or Beast 
beast subduer. <laughs> beast arrangement person. I don't know. So, uh, John Eric Hexham. He had done Voyagers, Voyagers, one of those been in a, a movie or two. And now he was on his new TV show. And it was called Cover Up. This part I remember. Now, by him coming off a, a primetime TV show like Voyager, Voyages, and now he's going on to another one, Cover Up, he's pretty much in that cycle. He is in the groove. He's going to be getting TV work, big and small, probably for the rest of his life because he's now on the inside. He's got the actor card. He's got all the union things. He's got all the connections. Apparently a nice guy to work with. And his love of humor and distraction ended up killing him. Because on the set of Cover Up, they were in a bit of downtime, which happens a lot when you're doing major studio productions. For movies or TV, there is a lot of downtime. A lot of actors go back to being on the stage because they don't want to wait around in trailers six to eight hours a day. So they were in some downtime and John Eric Hexham picked up one of the guns there that had blanks in it. It was a real gun, but the bullet was a blank. He pretended to shoot himself in the head, the side of his head. And those of you who know what blanks really are, it's some wadded up paper or cotton or something that's compacted the gunpowder. Now the gunpowder has to eject forward with enough force that it makes a noise like a gunshot. And it's not a visual, it's mostly an audio thing. So there's still a great deal of force coming out of the barrel of that gun. And as he held it at the side of his head, that force knocked a little bit of his skull into his brain. So him joking around and going, oh look, uh, this, this boredom, it's killing me. Uh, I think I'll just, I'll end it all right now. Puts the pistol, fires the blank, he drops. He was uh, yeah, pronounced brain dead, brain hopeless. You know, wouldn't they? they just know there's never coming back from this. And his mom flew, I think. He flew out to the hospital to sign off and giving away all the parts of his son and the kidneys and. All the things that you could harvest from someone who was in great shape. And I think they're in their 20s. I think he's a young guy. And everything about him was perfect except that one little bit on the side of his head. What sticks in my memory about this guy is nothing that he did in any of his TV and movies. What I really remember about him was that they were doing a profile on him. And I saw this when I was a kid. A profile on the tragedy of what happened to him. And they were showing clips of what he had done. And they, you know, movies and TV, but they ended it with just some footage of during one of the breaks in filming somewhere. He was sitting at a piano and he was playing classical piano, 
really good with that look on his face that pe people playing piano get when it's a serious piece. It was, you know, so much that falls outside the stereotype of this beefcake Hollywood, Hollywood wannabe person that it was pretty stunning that he was also a very good classical pianist. So now comes the half of the podcast that isn't about tragedy. So I'm trying to get out of a tragic mode for this part. Well, speaking of blanks um, and pistols, I, you know, you might wonder, hey, you have, Albert, you tried to be famous 20 years, never happened, but you must have tried, you know, auditioning for things, kind of like Hexum did. You must have gone around, movie, TV, theaters, that sort of thing. And it is true, I did for a while and might do again someday, I don't know, you know, who can say what you're going to do next. But I did get a part a small part in a play called Mr. Burns, a post-apocalyptic play. And at first uh, I was, what the hell is this play about? I mean, I'm, uh, the script I got from him, it was so good. If it was about, in the future, if there's some sort of catastrophe where the electrical grid is knocked out, the nuclear power plants are not gonna have the means to cool themselves. Therefore, they are all gonna go into what we think of as China Syndrome, uh, people from my generation think of it that way. But you're really going to get us a lot of radioactive fallout that's going to cover an area around those nuclear 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 power plants, and those are going to keep spreading. And the only way to live is to live very far away from a nuclear power plant without electricity. Now, what would the world look like with a permanent electricity loss and also a high population count? Uh, removed. Well, we think of it in nuclear war times. Now the world is serious and undistracted by media items. Now that's the upside. The downside, if you want to think of it as a downside, is that we no longer have access to television programs which we really adored and which deserve rewatching. Uh, for me, as you know, it's the UK version of House of Cards. But for the people in this play, it was The Simpsons. They try to remember Simpsons episodes because they can no longer play them on DVDs and TVs. They can no longer see a Simpsons episode. And so in the future, in this post-apocalyptic future, semi-apocalyptic, they start forming theater groups, little theater groups, that perform episodes as best they can remember of The Simpsons and some other TV shows too, but mostly The Simpsons. Because they can't remember them exactly, these little playthings mutate into some very strange performances by the, third, by the third act, when we go far into the future. The Simpsons episode that they were trying to make into a little theater thing that they could perform without electricity to all these other people starving in these little camps. It's so unrecognizable it becomes like a small religious opera and it's kind of beautiful 
and at the same time very, very funny because they can't let go of things like Itchy and Scratchy. They're still in there, but now they become these symbols. They become like these icons of various states of humanity. And salvation comes from defeating Mr. Burns. And Mr. Burns is, in a way, he's embodied the entire nuclear holocaust. So what part did you play, Albert, in this play? I played the masked gunman. Now, I also gave the curtain speech because no one else was able to do it. They were in costume at that point. So I came out and said, hey, everyone, welcome. These you got exit here, exit there. In case of emergency, please turn off your cell phones all the way off, not even on vibrate, because we can see the phone from the stage if it's glowing. And also, if they want to donate in and above their ticket cost, there's, there's that too. I had a whole spiel for it. We were even selling donuts with sprinkles in the lobby, so I mentioned that too. Then I would go off stage, and I would get into my costume as the masked gunman, which was across a little alley in another room up the stairs. I start putting on some raggy stuff, fingerless gloves, a little bit of a post-apocalyptic, I'm a guy you should be wary of sort of costume. And when I was able to hear in these little speakers what was going on with the show, then went down the stairs and I knew it was getting close to my time back across the alley and in. And there's something called a crow's nest in this theater, which you could climb up a ladder and then be on this little platform behind the audience. So the audience is between you and the stage. I would put on my hockey mask, like Friday the 13th, Jason Voorhees hockey mask. I would get the guns out of the locked box that a stagehand had. We had to unlock it and give me the real guns and then lock it right after I came down the ladder. That was the only way legally we could have these firearms in the theater. They were loaded with blanks. They were very heavy. One big pistol and one smaller pistol. And I'll tell you why I had two in a minute. I climbed up the ladder during this one moment where they're all trying to do the Simpsons theme in a creepy way on the stage. So I remember hearing it and climbing up that ladder very slow so the audience couldn't hear me. Then I was on the platform behind them all and there's a chair next to me. Now, a few people have seen me by this point because the hockey mask was white. So all around the theater, people suddenly see what the guy's climbing up back there because the, the audience is at a right angle in this theater. So some of them can kind of see out of the corner of their eye, I'm coming up and I'm up on this platform now and I'm just watching the actors. And then I pick up this chair that was up there and I slam it down on the ground really loud, makes the audience jump. One night it bounced weird and almost hit a guy in the back of the head who was in the very back row so close we're talking an inch or less from it clocking him on the back of the head i feel very lucky i wouldn't even know what to do then do we stop the show or do we just pretend that hey this is post-apocalyptic future these things happen so then i bang that chair down and i pick up a crowbar that was hanging there on a girder a real girder from the theater like a steel girder going across the top because i'm up pretty high and then actors down on stage they look up and they're scared of my character because I'm a masked gunman guy and it's post-apocalyptic future where people are fighting doing things for resources and they're like hey uh, the actors are saying 
in the in character, right? Hey, uh, can we help you? What's uh, what's going on? We're not we're not doing a show right now. We're just uh, practicing, rehearsing. And I took this crowbar off the where it was hanging from, and I start banging it against the girder and start dragging it across the girder to try to make sparks. And it's really loud and scary, and it makes them all get very very nervous down on stage. They go, all right, all right, we're going to get you uh, the money or the food. or I can't even remember what it was that they think they're going to give me to placate me. But then they start moving off stage, and that's when I reach inside my jacket and pull out the big handgun and point it at them and fire six blanks down at the actors on the stage. And two or three of them drop while others scatter. And the reason I had a second gun is because we needed six shots. And blanks are not reliable. Out of six, you will usually have one or two duds. If I got a dud among those six, I had to reach with my other hand and pull the smaller handgun out of a back pocket and fire the last shot or two. So me going up and down that ladder with those heavy guns, one on the inside of a jacket pocket, one in the back pocket of my pants. And then right after I fire the last shot, Lights drop. We play Livin' La Vida Loca with a car screech. That uh, Ricky song, what, Ricky, what's his name? I can't remember. And there's a good reason why we chose that song. They reference it in the play. But while that song's playing and we're in full blackout, I'm going down the ladder, taking off the mask really quick, handing the guns back to the stagehand so she could lock them in the box again. And I'm scooting away and I'm back out across the alley before people go out to intermission to see me. Um, that was the favorite thing I've ever done in entertainment. I would come back after intermission, I'd sit with the audience and watch act three, that I really stopped, became something I loved and watched it with them. And every night got to see it. And they had no idea that I was just above them up there on the platform shooting. Sometimes I'd say, I wanted to brag. You know, sometimes I say I was mass gunman. If it kind of came up or if I was just chatting anyway, I wouldn't like walk in the room and wave my arms and go, hey, mass gunman here, come, come to sit with you. Um, but that was amazing, getting to do that. And it was very low pay. You might say no pay when all things considered, when it, transportation cost and feeding myself. But the one thing that gave it a strange flavor every night and every matinee is as I'm firing those guns with the blanks in them I did remember you know John Eric Hexum what how what if this is how the gun would have felt in his hand with the blank this would have been the last sound that he heard what would make you take this and put it on the side of your head even if you were bored because they're heavy. I mean, blanks have got real explosives in them, so they, they, they're not in a toy gun. They're in a real gun. I don't know. And if you want to look him up, um, he spelled it in a very 80s way. John, J-O-N, Eric, E-R-I-K, Hexum, H-E-X-U-M. But you know what it made me do? Made me feel so lucky. Lucky, lucky, lucky that I got to do that fun thing for that show. And then 
you know, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how weird I feel, I'm never going to put one of these to the side of my head without it being, you know, real bullet and full intention. But I mean, just because of him doing that and my knowing about it, did he save me? Did I, would I have maybe tried to, because, you know, a few cute, cute uh, females in the play. Maybe I would have just, oh, would that, it was downtime, because I'm hanging with him. I got to hang with him, out the rehearsals and everything. Maybe just one of those times, go through a dress rehearsal, and we got all the full props. Just like thinking, oh, they might find this kind of edgy, kind of uh, attractive, if I'm a, sort of the guy who, you know, just so casual about this sort of thing. I put a gun to my head and fire a blank. Like, oh yeah, I'm dark, baby. This is what I find funny. But I would never do that, ever, in that kind of trying to be funny thing, situation. And it's because of him. I think other people might have been saved by him, having done that. That now we know. Because when he did it, he must not have known. And it was a surprise to the rest of us. It's like, what? but that wasn't a real bullet. How did, and they, they had to explain in detail the physics, how it is still deadly. And I think from that point forward, he took the bullet for someone else, and maybe even me. And I don't even mean that metaphorically as a pun or any kind of that. I think he did that, and now someone else didn't. And even though the odds are really, really low, that someone might have been me. Might have been me. So, I felt lucky. And you feel lucky. Right? Keep feeling lucky. You know? Like I say, what's the alternative? Alright. Nevergotfamous.com Talk to you next time. Alright. Have a good uh, week. Bye.